Chapter Seventeen from Part Two of the Seahawk. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Seahawk by Raphael Sabatini. Chapter Seventeen from Book Two. The Dupe. For a little while Assad stood at gaze, speechless in his incredulity. Then, to revive the anger that for a moment had been whelmed in astonishment, came the reflection that he had been duped by Sakhar Bar, duped by the man he trusted most. He had snarled at Fenzele, and scorned Marzak, when they had jointly warned him against his lieutenant. If at times he had been in danger of heeding them, yet, sooner or later, he had concluded that they but spoke to vent their malice. And yet it was proven now, that they had been right in their estimate of this traitor, whilst he himself had been a poor, blind dupe needing Marzak's wit to tear the bandage from his eyes. Slowly he went down the gangway, followed by Marzak, Biscayne, and the others. At the point where it joined the waist-deck, he paused, and his dark old eyes smouldered under his beetling brows. So, he snarled, these are thy goods of price, thou lying dog. What was thine aim in this? Defiantly, Sakhar el-Bar answered him, She is my wife. It is my right to take her with me where I go. He turned to her, and bade her veil her face, and she immediately obeyed him, with fingers that shook a little in her agitation. "'None questions thy right to that,' said Asad. "'But, being resolved to take her with thee, why not take her openly? "'Why was she not housed in the poop-house, as becomes the wife of Sakhar el-Bar? "'Why, smuggle her aboard in a pannier, and keep her there in secret?' "'And why,' added Barzak, "'didst thou lie to me when I questioned thee?' upon her whereabouts, telling me she was left behind in thy house in Algiers. All this I did, replied Sakhar el-Bar, with a lofty, almost a disdainful dignity, because I feared lest I should be prevented from bearing her away with me. And his bold glance, beating full upon Assad, drew a wave of color into the gaunt old cheeks. "'What would have caused that fear?' he asked. "'Shall I tell thee? Because no man sailing upon such a voyage as this would have desired the company of his new-wedded wife. Because no man would take a wife with him upon a raid in which there is peril of life and peril of capture.' Allah has watched over me, his servant, in the past, 
said Sakar Hobar, and I put my trust in him. It was a specious answer. Such words, laying stress upon the victories Allah sent him, had aforetime served to disarm his enemies, but they served not now. Instead, they did but fan the flames of Assad's wrath. Blaspheme not, he croaked, and his tall form quivered with rage. His sallow old face grew vulturing. She was brought thus aboard in secret, out of fear that were her presence known, thy true purpose too must stand revealed. And whatever that true purpose may have been, put in Marzak, it was not the task entrusted thee of raiding the Spanish treasure galley. Tis what I mean, my son, Assad agreed. Then, with a commanding gesture, Wilt thou tell me without further lies what thy purpose was? he asked. How? said Sakar al-Bar, and he smiled never so faintly. Hast thou not said that this purpose was revealed by what I did? Rather than, I think it is for me to ask thee for some such information. I do assure thee, my lord, that it was no part of my intention to neglect the task entrusted me. But just because I feared, lest knowledge of her presence might lead my enemies, to suppose what thou art now supposing, and perhaps persuade thee to forget all that I have done for the glory of Islam, I determined to bring her secretly aboard. My real aim, since you must know it, was to land her somewhere on the coast of France, whence she might return to her own land and her own people. That done, I should have set about intercepting the Spanish galley, and never fear but that by Allah's favour I should have succeeded. By the horns of Shaitan, swore Marzak, thrusting himself forward. He is the very father and mother of lies. Will thou explain this desire to be rid of a wife thou hadst but wed? he demanded. I growled Asad. Canst answer that? Thou shalt hear the truth, said Sakar el-Bar. The praise to Allah, mocked Marzak. But I warn you, the corsair continued, that to you it will seem less easy to believe by much than any falsehood I could invent. Years ago, in England, where I was born, I loved this woman, and should have taken her to wife. But there were men and circumstances that defamed me to her so that she would not wed me, and I went forth with hatred of her in my heart. Last night, the love of her which I believed to be dead and turned to loathing, proved to be still a living force. Loving her, 
I came to see that I had used her unworthily, and I was urged by a desire above all others to undo the evil I had done. On that he paused, and after an instant's silence, Asad laughed angrily and contemptuously. <laughs> Since when has man expressed his love for a woman by putting her from him? He asked in a voice of scorn that showed the precise value he set upon such a statement. I warn thee it would seem incredible, said Sakar al-Bar. Is it not plain, O oh my father, that this marriage of his was no more than a pretense? cried Marzak. As plain as the light of day, replied Asad, thy marriage with that woman made an impious mock of the true faith. It was no marriage. It was a blasphemous pretense, thine only aim to thwart me, abusing my regard for the prophet's holy law, and to set her beyond my reach. He turned to Vigitello, who stood a little behind Sakr al-Bar. Bid thy men put this traitor into irons, he said. Heaven hath guided thee to a wise decision, O my father, cried Marzak, his voice jubilant. But his was the only jubilant note that was sounded, his the only voice that was raised. The decision is more like to guide you both to heaven, replied Sakar el-Bar, undaunted. On the instant he had resolved upon his course. Stay, he said, raising his hand to Vigitello, who, indeed, had shown no sign of stirring. He stepped close up to Assad, and what he said did not go beyond those who stood immediately about the Basha and Rosamond, who strained her ears that she might lose no word of it. Do not think, Assad, he said, that I will submit me like a camel to its burden. Consider thy position well. If I but raise my voice to call my sea-hawks to me, only Allah can tell how many will be left to obey thee. Darest thou put this matter to the test? He asked, his countenance grave and solemn, but entirely fearless, as of a man in whom there is no doubt of the issue as it concerns himself. Assad's eyes glittered dully, his color faded to a deathly ashen hue, Thou infamous traitor, he began, in a thick voice, his body quivering with anger. Ah, no, Sakar al-Bar interrupted him. Were I a traitor, it is what I should have done already, knowing as I do that in any division of our forces numbers will be heavily on my side. Let then my silence prove my unswerving loyalty, Assad. Let it weigh with thee in considering my conduct. 
nor permit thyself to be swayed by Marzak there, who wrecks nothing so that he vents his petty hatred of me. Do not heed him, O my father, cried Marzak. It cannot be that peace, growled Asad, somewhat stricken on a sudden. And there was peace, while the Basha stood moodily combing his white beard, his glittering eyes sweeping from Oliver to Rosamond, and back again. He was weighing what Sakar el-Bar had said. He more than feared that it might be no more than true, and he realized that if he were to provoke a mutiny here, he would be putting all to the test, setting all upon a throw in which the dice might well be cogged against him. If Sakar el-Bar prevailed, he would prevail not merely aboard this galley, but throughout Algiers, and Assad would be cast down, never to rise again. On the other hand, if he bared his scimitar, and called upon the faithful to support him, it might chance that, recognizing in him the exalted of Allah, to whom their loyalty was due, they would rally to him. He even thought it might be probable. Yet the stake he put upon the board was too vast. The game appalled him, whom nothing yet had appalled, and it scarce needed a muttered caution from Biscayne to determine him to hold his hand. He looked at Sakar el-Bar again, his glance now sullen. I will consider thy words, he announced, in a voice that was unsteady. I would not be unjust, nor steer any course by appearances alone. Allah forbid. End of chapter 17 from part 2 of the Seahawk Read by Dennis Sayers in Modesto, California Fall 2007